If you're going to show people that you know something they don't know, and you know something which can be helpful to them, do it humbly. Do it humbly. And I think that's perfectly reasonable and, and entirely within the spirit of Christ that uh, every preacher and teacher should have. Hey everybody, welcome to Faith in the Folds, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Burr. Today I've got a special episode for us where I am actually not interviewing somebody. This is more along the lines of what I have called essay-type uh, podcast episodes. I'm also off-script somewhat. I have, um, have a series of pictures and things in front of me that I'm going to talk about that I will show on screen as relevant. But what I want to do today is go through a Facebook post that I shared on July 30th, some point in the afternoon. We had, uh, this is something I've been thinking about for a while, and um, since I have started a group on Facebook called the Greek Story Hour, which is intended to some degree to be kind of a Greek counterpart to Dr. Lance Hawley's Hebrew Story Hour. Dr. Hawley presented this, started this as kind of a weekly thing last school year. Dr. Lance Hawley is a professor of Old Testament at Harding School of Theology in Memphis, my MDiv alma mater. And um, I loved what Dr. Hawley was doing. My apologies for not always being able to attend Dr. Hawley's Zoom session, but he did a great job of translating through some uh, material in the Hebrew Bible and talking a little bit about sort of what what um, you know? What aspects of uh, translation um, really make that story come out? And looking at you know, talking about you know, different words here and there, and you know, processes of you know, trying to figure out you know, what exactly is the is the author going for in this or that instance. And so, I I like that idea. Um, I had talked to Dr. Holly about uh, doing something similar with Greek, uh, but not wanting to uh, not wanting to step on his toes or steal his thunder. We uh, both kind of independently thought you know, once a month would be pretty useful, and so I've started doing this with Greek uh, with Philippians. You can join us first Wednesdays of the month during the school year on Zoom, and uh, I'll post those videos on YouTube later. But from that thinking about Greek and its use for ministers, particularly ministers who do a lot of uh, a lot of teaching and preaching, I posed this question on Facebook on July 30th at 3.44 p.m. Question for churchgoers who aren't ministers. When a preacher, specifically during the sermon, makes a point from a Hebrew or Greek word, have you found that information helpful and informative or distracting and unnecessary? I'm curious because I always found it helpful, and my preachers when I was growing up may have even planted a seed in me for wanting to learn Greek in college and grad school. Thanks. And so I posed this question, and I did not really think that I would get a lot of, um, a lot of comments, a lot of uh, interest in this. It turns out I was, uh, I was wrong and pleasantly surprised at the uh, different people who uh, hopped on and, and commented whether or not they thought that uh, a preacher using Hebrew or Greek in a sermon, and specifically naming the Hebrew or Greek word in the sermon, was a good idea. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time together is kind of work through how some, uh, what some of these responses were. Um, I will mention only first names. I'll mention only first names. And I'll uh, I'll block out the uh, last names for um, you know for people who you know, for the sake of privacy uh, there are a couple of guys who whose names I will mention because I know they won't mind and as ministers I want to uh, allude to them anyway because they're doing really good work and I I like these guys so uh, some of the first uh, first comments that I got were were pretty positive and I and I was pleasantly surprised. Um, 
and just how many positive comments uh, there were. Uh, Barbara had mentioned that understanding the original meaning of the words is extremely helpful. And I like her phrase there, original meaning. Um, I, I know she was writing, writing you know, not intending to be, you know, with it, not intending exact precision. Um, Greek and Hebrew words, as with words in almost every language, rarely have precisely one meaning. Um, you think of any any English word, um, bank is a good one. Um, are you talking about a place where you keep your money? Are you um, telling someone that they can uh, that they can be confident of something? You can bank on that. Are we talking about uh, you know the side of a river, like a river bank? You know, I'm noted thought about this example the other day too. The word train is it a verb? Or is it a noun? Well, right, depending on the context. But again, my point is, right, words rarely have one particular meaning. But Barbara's point is pretty helpful here. Uh, or Barbara's point is well taken. Understanding the original meaning of the words is extremely helpful. And her notion there, what I want to key in is her word original. I think that that is, um, that is especially helpful when you're trying to do what is really any kind of historical research. And translation of, you know, texts that were written 2,000 plus years ago is essentially historical research. You're trying to figure out, you know, what would this have meant then? And, um, you know, does that shed light on how I understand it today? So, Barbara, I really appreciate that. Adrian said she finds it helpful to do, especially to origins. So here again, this is that notion of origins. Um, she says it does clear things up, though. And uh, that is when they are done, when it is used well, when the, the original languages are used well. That's definitely, definitely their benefit there. Now, Jackie mentioned that, you know, quote, I find it helpful. I like to know this is why we do this and where it comes from. I know some people think it's cool if you can tell them in one to two sentences and move on. If you spend five minutes on it, you'll lose them. And Jackie's mentioned something that's very, uh, very helpful to remember here is that when you're going to uh, be in a preaching setting or a teaching setting and you're and you're working particularly in a church audience it is very it, it's very helpful to keep in mind that you know you probably your folks can handle you know some of this discussion i i think most everybody has had enough exposure to foreign languages to be able to to say you know okay you know in this particular original language this meant that in you know, words that we use in the target language can mean these kinds of things. And then, like she said, move on. Um, one, uh, one thing that, um, that comes to mind, too, is when she says, I like to know this is why we do this and where it comes from. Sometimes this notion of where a word comes from can be illuminating. Um, that doesn't mean that it's always illuminating, uh, but I think the point that she's referring to here is, or at least what comes to my mind is, this notion of etymology. Etymology, where the idea behind etymology is uh, really kind of the study of uh, word roots and where words come from. There's a Greek word that is used in the New Testament, one of the words commonly translated uh, to sin, and in Greek it's hamartano. Now, prior to the development of the New Testament, you know, Greek was Greek. Greek didn't just start with the New Testament, right? There was hundreds, uh, you know, thousand plus years of development of languages uh, in their in and around the Mediterranean basin, and people groups moving in and all that stuff. And so you get a word like hamartano in New Testament. It means something like sin, like like what we would think of in a Christian context. But in, but prior generations before the New Testament understood the word hamartano to be something like to miss the mark. To miss the mark. And you can envision like an arrow being shot toward a target and it misses the mark. Well, that's, that is a helpful way of thinking about sin. You know, sometimes we try hard and, and still miss the mark of what it is that God has required of us. That's by no means the only way to think about sin, and that's not even necessarily the best way that, or the way that the New Testament thinks about it. But still, the notion is similar and may be helpful, you know, kind of at the level of an illustration. Uh, Jenny, 
says that she she loves it, always finds it uh, interesting and helpful. Appreciate that. And uh, Tom uh, says that he finds it informative, um, which, you know, again, done well would definitely be informative. And Joel brings up uh, a pretty good point here as we kind of move on. He says, only when the word is generally misinterpreted and Greek or Hebrew offer a better insight into deeper meaning. Well, I happen to have a um, an example of that kind of thing, of a word that is uh, generally misinterpreted. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Romans chapter 12, I mean, I can, I can read it here and you can see it on the screen here, but Romans chapter 12, I will... Um, I'll read the, just the first verse, Romans 12, 1 here. Read the first verse from the ESV. It's a pretty common translation. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Okay. The New Revised Standard Version is, uh, is pretty similar. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, the reason why the ESV translates uh, this word as brothers, and the New Revised Standard, the NRSV, translates it as brothers and sisters is that, like in many languages, in Greek, the plural form of the word brother can refer to both men and women can refer to both men and women. In this context, since Paul is writing to the church in Rome, which is all obviously comprised of both men and women, the New Revised Standard Version opts for something like brothers and sisters. That's what Paul means. Okay, The ESV goes uh, more on the other side and translates the word itself, brothers, as opposed to brothers and sisters, which is what Paul said. And you can, I hope you catch the difference there between what Paul said and what Paul means. This happens, this happens all the time. Um, and so I had that, not anything to be, be too worried about. But the issue that, that I want to raise up here is this, this notion of spiritual worship. Listen to the NIV. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters... In view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Now, the ESV and the NRSV both said this was your spiritual worship. But the NIV says this is your true and proper worship. Well, that's obviously different from spiritual, yeah, true and proper as opposed to spiritual. When you think of spiritual in the New Testament, you tend to think of something that is, well, uh, something that's good and spiritual. You tend to think of something that's inspired by or motivated by or prompted by or under the influence of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And there are, you know, there's a host of related Greek words that, um, you know, that indicate, you know, when, you know, the word spirit or something that is spiritual is being referred to. The problem is, in Greek, that's not the case here in Romans 12, 1. The word that is typically translated spiritual is not the Greek word that's used here. The Greek word that's used here is actually the word from which we get our English word logical and logic. And I've got a lexicon here with me, and it's for this particular word, here, where we're talking about, um, you know, spiritual worship or, you know, or true and proper worship, the idea behind this Greek adjective is that it pertains to being carefully thought through or thoughtful. I think that thoughtful makes a lot of sense in the context. I really do. And so to Joel's point, talking about, you know, how Greek or Hebrew might be helpful when a word is generally misinterpreted, I mean, as well-meaning as the ESV and the NRSV are, I think that the NIV, while better, it still didn't go far enough. I think thoughtful, your thoughtful worship, your thoughtful uh, service, is probably better given the context, especially when you consider the very next verse. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. 
by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Verse 2 is very obviously and explicitly about the transformation of thinking processes, the transformation of your mind. Well, it seems like then that thoughtful worship is a perfectly acceptable translation of this phrase here in, at the end of Romans 12, 1. So anyway, if I were to be preaching on Romans 12, I, I would go into that more eloquently than what I've done now. But still, that's an example of kind of what Joel is talking about here, where you've got a word that's generally misinterpreted, and Greek or Hebrew may offer a little bit better insight into it. Amanda mentions that she thinks it's helpful and she appreciates learning it, and it helps her see the world differently. Anytime you can learn a new language, you are essentially learning a, a new way of, uh, of commenting on uh, reality. There's, uh, you know, languages rarely ever have, you know, kind of a one-to-one -one correspondence where, you know, since we're talking about Greek here, where this one Greek word always means the equivalent of this one English word. Um, that is rarely the case. And so when you can learn a little bit more about another language, you can you know, maybe learn a little bit more about the world from which that language uh, derived, at least. So I think there's some good benefit to, to that as well. And I appreciate to Joel and Amanda's comments. Now, Rob has mentioned here that, yes, he thinks, I think, also helpful and beneficial to understand the Jewish context surrounding a passage, too. And then he admits, I'm also a nerd and love this stuff. Nerd's an interesting word, since we're talking about words here. Nerd's an interesting word. I've been saying for a while now that the word nerd really just means that you're an enthusiast for something that is not sports, cars, and firearms. <laughs> and you can you can say, oh, yeah, well, you know, like I'm a football nerd or whatever. Yeah, I get that. But if you were to just call somebody a nerd... Um, you know, that might either mean they really love Star Wars or maybe they really love chemistry. <laughs> I don't know, something, something along those lines. But anyway, Rob, a, a self-professed nerd here, um, talks about how learning something additional about the original language is a helpful to understand the Jewish context surrounding a passage. And, and that is... That is very true. One thing that that would have been incredibly beneficial for students of the New Testament would would be to have Jesus's teachings as they were most likely originally delivered in Aramaic. Now, there's a lot of discussion about what languages did Jesus know, what languages were being spoken in Galilee uh, in the first century A.D. and I think you can make a pretty compelling case that, um, yes, you know, Aramaic was the language that, you know, almost all of you know, all the folks that Jesus would have encountered uh, spoke regularly. But um, Greek had been the um, the universal language, the lingua franca, for you know, for quite a long time before um, you know before the uh, movement of the Romans into this part of the world. I suspect that there were Latin phrases here or there that um, you know, that people whom Jesus interacted with would have uh, needed to know as well. And so it's 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 reasonable that Jesus knew Aramaic, right? That should be obvious. Uh, I think it's also reasonable that Jesus would have had maybe some facility with uh, with Greek and perhaps some with Latin as well. Um, but. To, uh, to to Rob's point here, the idea that we have, you know, that language can help us understand some of the Jewish context surrounding a passage. That's uh, that that would definitely be true if we could know even more about, you know, about the Aramaic behind some of Jesus's teachings. Um, one thing that's helpful is uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and uh, especially the documents created by the community there near the Dead Sea, where we get to see a lot of their thinking about God's work in the world, about the, um, the Messiah, and, um, and just the, the, the spiritual world in which they, they believed uh, 
about or the, the spiritual realities that they that they affirmed. Um, there's there's a lot of overlap about you know light and dark and good and evil and things like that with the um, documents from the Qumran community near the Dead Sea and some of the things that we see in the Gospel of John. And so, yeah, it's definitely clear that Jewish persons in the first century were thinking along these lines. And so Jesus uh, and, and John's, um, John's depiction of Jesus definitely makes sense within that context as well. My friend Jonathan says, I appreciate the reference. I think it's helpful as long as it's communicated well and given to add context. And yeah, that's a, definitely right. Context there is is really key here. And Jonathan said, as long as it's communicated well, which goes back to a point I think Jackie made earlier, that we, you know, for those who are preaching and teaching, if you're going to use the original languages, short and sweet, to the point, um, don't belabor, don't belabor those, uh, that discussion with uh, all the possible meanings and all the discussion. Um, I, in a class setting where there's more time for discussion, even then I will not belabor one of those uh, points. I'll just you know, say, hey, here's the word in you know, the Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic. Here's, um, here's how it is used in this particular context. It kind of has these connotations. And maybe here are two or three other scriptures where this is you know, how this is used to help us understand how it's being used in this particular passage and then, you know, try to move on to that. Um, I'll spend a little bit more time, right, if it's something that is, uh, is pretty significant, like, um, like something that I've done a lot here while teaching at King's Crossing is uh, focusing on what it means to be uh, created in the image of God. I think, um, <laughs> I think in almost every class that I have taught, at um, in one point or another, I've mentioned what it means to be created in the image of God and what that word image means in Hebrew and how it relates to, uh, uh, you know, how elsewhere it's translated as something like idol. Um, and so I'm just going to dangle that little carrot there and maybe return to that at some point later in this episode or, or not at all. And you'll just have to hunt uh, <laughs> and find, find some of my stuff about that. Molly mentioned this. Uh, she said, super helpful, always welcome, and frequently missed when a teacher instead says something vague like, well, that word can be challenging. Think of it this way instead. She said that happened in a sermon uh, she heard that day that I asked that question. And then she thought, well, I wish he'd just said, here's what the word is or what it meant in the original language and context instead of, instead of just telling me one modern way to think of it. I think I understand Molly's frustration here. And, and yeah, I, I, I didn't hear the sermon in question that she's referring to, but I think this is uh, this is another good example of when you uh, of how sometimes it's difficult to know precisely how to handle uh, you know the application of Greek or Hebrew in in a sermon. Um, just offering up a, you know another modern interpretation of this word can be helpful, um, but it can it can also maybe maybe miss the mark a little bit. Um, you know, speaking of Greek words and what I mentioned earlier, Hamartano. But anyway, uh, yeah, I, I, I think I understand what uh, Molly is getting at there. Christy says, I think it's very helpful when used to deepen meaning or interpretation. The word love, for example, we have one word for it mainly, but the Greek language has eight, I believe. It deepens the understanding of what Scripture says more accurately. I, uh, I believe I, I, I don't have it here, but I believe on Facebook I commented that I was familiar with Four terms that four Greek terms that can generally be translated as uh, as love in English, and yeah, she's ex exactly right. Uh, and, and this is a great example. Love in in Greek uh, has, like I said, four terms um, that are all somewhat captured to varying degrees of accuracy by the English word. Um, or the, sorry, there are four words in Greek that are all captured to varying degrees of accuracy by the English word love. I think C.S. Lewis was, if not the first person to notice this, he was definitely the person to popularize this with his book, uh, The Four Loves, where he mentions, where he mentions um, 
philo, uh, philae, which is uh, like a friendly, you know, like a platonic or friendship kind of love. Eros, which is uh, generally more considered uh, romantic, uh, romantic love. Um, the uh, the notion of storge, which is uh, not one that, I, I, if it occurs in the New Testament, it, it's not very often. I don't think it occurs in the New Testament. I, I forgot to look that up before, but I, I feel pretty confident that it does not occur in the New Testament. Storge is something along the lines of affection of some kind, I believe that's the argument he makes. And then, of course, agape, if you grew up in churches, particularly in churches of Christ, uh, I think you're familiar with the term agape. Agape it means love, but can, um, but does not, does not always carry with it the connotation of self-sacrificial love, as some preachers are wont to say. So that's, you know, again, take it easy with uh, with some of that stuff. But again, Christie's point here is well taken. Cassidy says, uh, "I always appreciate. It. I think it helps bring depth and define terms for us in a world that wants to def- redefine." Love, peace, grace, kindness, etc. It's helpful to look back at the origins of Scripture and analyze its full meaning. Matthew comes up with a similar idea here. When a word can mean something abstract in modern terms, it's good to get a feel for what the Greek has to say to narrow the interpretation. So Cassidy mentions uh, society generally wanting wanting to redefine what uh, certain words mean. Matthew refers to um, you know, some kind of abstract notion of what a particular word refers to. And so one thing that I've, uh, you know, that I've come to appreciate more is a word like grace, a word like grace. You can go to a number of places in the New Testament to find this. An easy place to find the word grace is at the beginning of basically all of Paul's letters, the beginning of Paul's letters. Paul takes the normal way of greeting somebody and he modifies it slightly to what appears to be maybe a more more overtly Jewish kind of greeting. Anyway, if you notice, most of Paul's letters will, you know, they start off with Paul and the name, either a co-sender and then the recipients, and uh, maybe some of the comments in there about his call as an apostle or something along those lines. Um, and then he'll wrap up with something like grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I've got 1 Corinthians 1, 3 up here, and that's exactly what he says. But the notion there of grace, that's one that we can look at here as kind of, a, um, kind of an example of this. Again, going back to Cassidy's and Matthew's points about you know, either redefining something or, you know, something that's kind of abstract. The notion of grace, I think we generally have kind of a, a an idea of what grace means. It, I can't think of a lot of contexts outside of church settings where I hear the word grace. And so to some degree, it almost feels like grace is something like a church word. Uh, I've heard some people talk about the words that tend to be used only in church settings as churchies, <laughs> as, a, as opposed to like, you know, Chinese or Japanese, there's churchies, which is a, kind of a funny way to think about it. It, it is a, I think what they've touched on, though, is a, is a, real, a real issue that in our effort, uh, a noble effort to speak um, biblically, or, or rather to let God's word, maybe a better way to put it would be like this, to let God's word uh, define how we, um, you know, the kinds of things that we talk about and the, and the ways in which we express our ideas. Um, in our efforts to do that, I, I hope that we have not lost people because of words like, um, you know, grace and uh, and peace or things along those lines are are missing or or redemption or repentance or anything along those lines. And so grace here is a good example. Uh, grace can mean something like you know um, you know favor or um, you know graciousness. Uh, the Greek word charis is the word that Paul uses there charis, and it can mean you know, like a beneficent disposition. Towards someone, that's uh, that's an example of what this what this means. It can mean something like a a practical 
application of goodwill. Um, and then it can also mean something along the lines of a response to generosity or beneficence, something like um, thanks or gratitude. One thing that is uh, pretty common here is uh, in this, um, it can be uh, grace, charis, can be something that, uh, that one grants to another, the action of one who volunteers to do something not otherwise obligatory. Um, the notion there is it really gets us close to something like um, the response to being given some kind of gift or of a something or something along those lines. Um, here's a in most of the beginnings of Paul's letters, the idea is something like this, and this comes from the main main Greek lexicon, where um, you know where most New Testament scholars use uh, the idea is a beneficent disposition towards someone, and that it's this word charis in Greek is translated favor, grace, graciousness, goodwill, and it says almost a technical term in the reciprocity-oriented world dominated by Hellenic influence, as well as by the Semitic sense of social obligation expressed in the term chesed. And chesed uh, usually is something along the lines of like a you know, covenantal love or covenantal loyalty or something like that, usually how it's translated. But notice here the, uh, the keys to this word grace. Um, it's almost a technical term in the reciprocity-oriented world dominated by Hellenic influence. Okay, so in a world that is dominated by Greek ideas and Greek way, uh, ways of, of doing things and Greek culture, really, um, the notion of reciprocity is... Uh, is pretty important in uh, in this world and also in uh, in, a, in a more Jewish mindset the sense of social obligation God has extended to us his grace his uh, beneficence his goodwill there are other ways that we could think about that but God has extended this to us he's given us this extraordinary gift well, when one is given an extraordinary gift, it is, it, by definition, because it's a gift, it's given freely, right? It's given freely, not, not through force or coercion. It's given freely. That does not now mean that you know, if I am to use this gift correctly, that does not now mean that I get to use this gift in whatever way I want. There are certain obligations. There are, you know, I, I am bound in, in certain ways to use this gift properly. You can think about this uh, in a number of ways. Um, fire is a really good example. We think about fire um, as a gift. Well, there are certain ways in which one can use fire to, um, to do extraordinary good. Uh, you, know, you, can, um, you can cook with it. You can um, you know, create space for growing more food uh, with its proper use, but fire can also be very deadly. And it, it, can, it can hurt, it can kill, it can destroy. You, if one is given the gift of something like fire, that's kind of a strange way to think about it, but go with me here. If you're given the gift of something like fire, then there are certain obligations that go with using that gift properly. And um, you can think about sexuality in the same way. Sexuality is an incredible gift. Um, and, but with it, there are certain obligations. And uh, you know that is a gift that one cannot just use however they want, right? Well, you don't need to go into any detail about the dangers of just using your, your sexuality however you want, regardless of whom you may hurt. So we can, we can look at it like that 
and then begin to understand that this notion of grace, which might seem kind of like churchese, right? Might seem kind of like just a, a generic term that Christians say because it makes us feel warm and fuzzy, or maybe because we do have a very strong sense of our uh, of God's um, unearned favor. Still, the notion of um, of being some kind of gift, which carries with it some sense of uh, obligation, can yeah, really can be illuminating for this particular word. Lanny made this point uh, on this uh, Facebook thread. I I, I thought she uh, raised a, a really good, really good uh, issue here. She says, "I think it's useful to do when it puts this puts scripture into the perspective of the culture it was written." To or when it helps to expose our own cultural biases. That's right. Uh, you know, let the text speak for itself, basically, and, and let it challenge us. But then she says, but I also think it's really important to keep the perspective that God knew about the necessity of translations of his word. And I don't personally believe that we need original translation to understand what he wants us to understand. And I actually post my comment, my reply here, because I, I wanted to see how... Um, I want to show how I engaged with this. I said, yes, this raises an interesting question about what specifically is inspired when we're talking about the Bible here. Is it the words or the message? If the words themselves are inspired, then translation is blasphemous. But if the message is inspired, then translation is not only possible, but essential to sharing the message. I have in mind here something like typical claims for uh, for the Quran, you know, there's uh, it, it's assen- it's essentially the belief that uh, many Muslims believe that um, you know, the Quran cannot be translated, should not be translated, and translations are ultimately unacceptable because, I, 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 if I'm not mistaken, the words themselves are what was given to Muhammad. Uh, the words themselves are essentially what is inspired. Um, To my knowledge, neither Paul nor Jesus nor uh, really anybody else within within the biblical context makes that particular argument about the Bible, about, about the words that they use. The message is is what is inspired. Now, it comes through us by means of particular words, and you know, that's not to say that the choice of this or that word is unimportant. By no means am I saying that. But I think we, um, I, I think what what Lanny has helped us show here is a helpful corrective to uh, you know to the notion that you know the only access is through the original languages. Well, that's absolutely that's absolutely wrong. Yeah. And I know Lanny isn't saying that that's what I'm saying. Um, uh, But there might be somebody out there who does, uh, in their zeal for God's word, get to a point where they think, well, the the only, the only true way is to, uh, to read it in, into the Greek or Hebrew and, and not through any way. It's like, no, that's, that's not the case. Um, And I can, in another setting, I, I would even demonstrate that with old, with Old Testament quotes found in the New Testament. Um, you know, because it, Old Testament quotes found in the New Testament don't always line up precisely with what's in the Hebrew Bibles that we have today. Sometimes they align a little bit more with the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint. Uh, and so anyway, there's, um, th- there's something that I-, I think Lanny brings up a good corrective there for us. Elizabeth and April both uh, say that um, Elizabeth both say things that are pretty similar here. Um, she says, I think it can be helpful for context, especially when it's a word that may be interpreted in more than one way. April says, I think it can be helpful when explaining a word that has a dual meaning. And so I put those right next to each other. Here's some great examples from the Gospel of John. So Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 5, the, uh, the ESV says... Um, that really the same thing as the NRSV and the NIV. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, that word overcome is a perfectly fine word, but if you look at this up in a lexicon, the, um, you can tell that the, 
guys who compiled the lexicon are kind of having a hard time figuring out precisely which did John mean. And you know, I actually think that this is kind of an intentional double entendre. I and a lot of other people do as well. The, uh, the darkness has not overcome it, overcome the light that is now uh, shining in the darkness. But another use of this particular word translated as overcome in these three English translations I mentioned, another translation of this can be understand. And so you could faithfully read this verse as saying, and the light now shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it. Well, because John does, you know, if this were just kind of a one-time instance, then you might be able to make a stronger case for one or the other as being the only, the only connotation that John intends. But that's not the only time that John has something that can uh, pretty easily be taken to mean something else. So that was John 1, 5. Now I'm in John chapter 3, verse 3. And uh, Jesus says there, um, the text says, And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born anothen in Greek, anothen in Greek, he is not able to see the kingdom of God. Well, anothen, what does that mean? Um, <clears throat> the uh, ESV says, unless one is born again, the NR, the, excuse me, the NIV says, unless someone is born again, the NRSV says, unless someone is born from above. Born from above. Well, this word anothen is kind of an unusual word in Greek. It's, it's would not be the first choice, I don't think, for the idea of begin, or excuse me, for you know, the idea of again. And so, you know, this word here can mean both from above and it can also mean again. Now, which did Jesus mean? Well, you can make a really strong argument for both. Nicodemus clearly takes him to mean again, right? Nicodemus clearly takes Jesus to mean again based on um, what he says in the very next verse, John chapter 3, verse 4. How can someone be born when, when they are old? Quoting from the NIV. Well, John seems like he does this a couple of times, at least, in the early chapters of the Gospel of John, when he, uh, when he says, you know, when, he will, when Jesus will say something that can be taken one of two ways, and then the, uh, the person with whom Jesus is speaking takes it one way, that then gives Jesus an opportunity to clarify and so, um, you know, Nicodemus in this instance and the woman at the well in the next instance that I'm going to talk about, they are, uh, they're almost like foils. Uh, not, not, in a, not in like a mean-spirited way, but they're, they're foils, um, you know, from which Jesus can kind of play off of and then, um, you know, talk a little bit more about what it is that he really wants them to get. So that was John chapter 3, verse 3. You can turn down again to John chapter 4. Verse 10, I mentioned that this is the woman at the well. Jesus meets, you know, Jesus is sitting there at the well and uh, having this uh, discussion with, uh, with, with her about, or uh, actually, you know, yeah, starts talking about, you know, hey, could you give me a drink? And they start this discussion. And uh, Jesus says to you, uh, be, uh, verse 10, Jesus answers and says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who is the one saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. Living water. Now, I, I'm not. I'm not going to lie. I, I can't think of any time where I have ever said living water. When I, unless I was quoting or referring to this passage, but there it is, plain as day, in the NRSV, the NIV, and the ESV. Living water. Well, from the very next verse we can tell that she is referring to something else. 
she misunderstands Jesus and thinks that he is referring to something else. A little bit of, uh, of Greek knowledge can illuminate this passage for us. The notion of living water is the Greek idiom for saying running water. Running water. Now, we call it running because it's moving. Well, the, in the Greek mindset, because it's moving, it's animated, it has life, it's living water. And so what Elizabeth and April have both alluded to here is, is incredibly important when you encounter a passage like what we've got um, in the first you know, four chapters in the Gospel of John. You know, you've got these, uh, these word plays, these double entendres, and, and John, you know, Jesus really leans into this in the Gospel of John. And so I appreciated uh, Elizabeth and April mentioning that. Whitney says, uh, she, I appreciate it because it gives me a clear understanding of the context and meaning of Scripture. And uh, uh, Cheryl also says that I think it's helpful and increases the interest in comparing the translations, which is you know, very much what we've done today, where we've helped illuminate uh, kind of the historical and cultural context of uh, some of the passages that we refer to here, and uh, also been able to um, look at some different uh, differences in translations. Now, I'm going to name names here because <laughs> this was actually pretty funny. Um, Mark Adams, my good friend Mark Adams, who's uh, been a friend on been a friend of the podcast for a while now, and uh, my uh, my former co-worker, twice former now, how <laughs> many people can, can say twice former co-worker, um, when I asked this question, Mark Adams said, big waste of time, if the King James Version was good enough for Jesus and the apostles, it's good enough for me. <laughs> I, I appreciated uh, Mark's joke there, and then the uh, comments following that were all pretty funny. And then uh, uh, Chris, an old uh, old friend from college, uh, Chris. I'm sorry, man. He just he went for the low hanging fruit here and said it's all Greek to me. <laughs> I was, I am pleasantly surprised that, to my knowledge, only one person actually did that. And Josh brings up a point and says, I find it very helpful. In fact, I tend to struggle more when preachers focus on the grammatical structure of the English translation to make their point. You know, since it wasn't written in English and all. Uh, yes, that is true. And uh, Sarah, my, uh, my wife's cousin, makes a, a similar point. Now, I'll preface this with, I'm a preacher's daughter and a big old nerd, and there's that word nerd again, uh, who feels like they have to understand everything, but I think it's extremely helpful, helpful. So often we can get caught up in the nuances of what the Bible says and how it words things. Dramatic ellipsis in English. Another dramatic ellipsis. And it's good to take a step back and remember, that's not the original language. What was the author really trying to say, and how would that have been interpreted by the people it was written for? Um, Josh and Sarah both make very, very good points here that our Bibles, as familiar as they should be to us, as familiar as the Word of God is to many of us, especially those of us who grew up in church and uh, grew up in the kind of church that actually took the Bible seriously. Took the Bible the way that it was intended to be taken, right? Took the Bible seriously. Um, it is uh, it is tempting for uh, for us to maybe forget how foreign the Bible actually is at times, being written in three languages, compiled over um, a period of a thousand years, um, where the last our uh, last elements were being added roughly 2,000 years ago, that, you know, halfway across the world in cultures uh, and languages and, um, you know, places that are, are so very different from what many, many people um, know and experience these days. And so I, I think it one thing that is helpful for us to, um, to maybe appreciate how um, how different the Bible is, is and, and how it challenges us is to see it in its original languages and or to be exposed to, to whatever degree we can be to its uh, original languages and, and let the uh, let the strangeness of it um, you know impress upon us 
how God has worked uh, through cultures and times to uh, to bring about his purposes. Yeah. So I, I appreciated that comment as well. Sharon said, we still have Bob Hendren feeding us in this matter. I enjoy learning as it brings out more ancient meanings that apply to us today. Sharon particularly mentions Bob Hendren, who was the preacher at my home congregation when I was just a wee lad. Um, I mentioned Mark Adams earlier. Mark and I grew up at the same congregation there in Nashville, and we actually had a moment of uh, appreciation for Bob Hendren when I interviewed Mark some point last year on the podcast. Bob was the kind of guy who, um, who would preach from his Greek New Testament there in the pulpit. He knew his Greek that well. I know Greek fairly well. I don't know that I'm, that I'm so confident as to be able to stand up there in the pulpit with naught but a Greek New Testament <laughs> and, and start preaching. And so you know, the, Bob is just part of a rare breed there. And um, it, Sharon makes a good point that um, it bringing out those ancient meanings really does uh, bring some depth to um, to the discussion and, and really can help us uh, apply Scripture uh, more faithfully, more broadly. David, another person who has, uh, has familiarity with languages, uh, says as much here in his quote. He says, well, yeah, I like it, and sometimes I'm inclined to back-check but then I do have some familiarity with the languages. <laughs> I've got to tell a funny story on myself about David and my introduction to his knowledge of ancient Greek. David is the um, is my sister-in-law's father, and uh, David uh, David grew up in the same neighborhood as my as my mom and aunts and um, and. Uh, one of his uh, buddies from from growing up, um, who um, who married my aunt, and uh, David studied. I believe uh, David studied classics at Vanderbilt. Um, it went on, I think, to do uh, electrical engineering. I, I, I believe. Forgive me if I'm mistaken that. But um, David studied classics, and so when uh, my brother-in-law, my now brother-in-law was about to marry his wife, who is now my sister-in-law. Um, yeah, I, I friends with my uh, brother-in-law, and so we decorated his car uh, for their honeymoon, as is customary. And um, I, <laughs> I thought, nobody knows Greek around here except me, so I'll write something funny in Greek on the, uh, on the car, and uh, they'll know, oh, you know, that was, that was Kevin. You know, he, he knows Greek. Um, and they'll just wonder what it was. Um, and so, in Greek, I, <laughs> uh, I've grown some since then, okay? I just, I just need to pause here for a moment and say that I actually have grown some since then. But I, um, I wrote the, uh, while true, maybe a little uh, crass or tacky statement in Greek, not a virgin tonight. Okay, that that's what I wrote. Not a virgin tonight, um, and in 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 Greek, and I thought, yeah, that's that's great. Well, <laughs> I didn't know that the father of the bride had a, had a degree in classics, or at least had studied classics, and so he walks up, sees sees the car, and uh, you know, as he's surveying it, um, he notices some Greek on there, and he looks at it. And he reads it and then says, well, I hope that goes both ways. <laughs> it's, and I, it wasn't until later, I, I think maybe even that day, that I found out that the father of the bride <laughs> knew Greek and read my uh, well-humored, like well-intended, though perhaps maybe tacky uh, comment about, um, about his daughter and... Um, my friend. <laughs> and so David's always been very kind with me. He's an old family friend, like I mentioned, so I appreciate David going easy with me about that. But yes, he uh, says he's inclined to back check. Anytime a preacher anywhere mentions, you know, the Greek or Hebrew of this or that, you've lost me for the next three minutes because I am pulling out my phone, my Greek New Testament, my Hebrew Bible, and I'm checking. I'm checking to see if that's right because, I mean, 
there, there need to be people in the audience who can check that. And it's really easy for a preacher to get lazy if, with their use of the original languages, if there is no one in the audience to check that kind of thing. So, Linda makes a makes a point here, especially the last uh, item that she uh, she raised. I, I think is uh, especially helpful to keep in mind. Personally, I think it's interesting because it brings to my attention the direct translation from the original. But I don't feel it's necessary. I'm not a scholar, and I admire that in others. But for me, it's all about getting my attention with a subject I can relate to. I think the key here is make it relevant. Make it relevant. If you're going to use uh, Greek in something, then you really need to make it relevant. Now here we start to, in the next few comments here, we really start to get into some of the potential pitfalls of using the original languages in, um, in your sermons. Michael mentions it's 70% helpful, 30% not. And most preachers fall into one of those camps and don't often venture into the other. Most helpful when they show how a fuller understanding of the original word adds texture to the scripture at hand. Not helpful when they say, well, we also get this other English word from the same root, and then don't go any further. I think both groups are trying to do the same thing, but it's not done with equal effectiveness. <clears throat> and that's right. You know, it, Michael brings um, Michael brings kind of a helpful corrective to this. If you are going to use Greek or Hebrew in your preaching and teaching, then please make sure that it is very obviously relevant. Make sure it is very obviously relevant as to why that adds some depth, why it's even worth mentioning in your sermon. Kelsey says, to be honest, it can annoy me sometimes if it is overdone, it, if it really makes a big difference and is getting a point across I can understand. But sometimes it can go over my head and sound like the preacher's just trying to show how smart he is compared to me. LOL. Now I quipped back, uh, Kelsey, that's a big problem with your current preacher for sure. The reason why I said that is because I am friends with her current preacher, who is also her husband, Lee who makes this helpful comment, I'm inclined to agree with those who have expressed original languages should be used sparingly and only when they're critical for making a point from the text. More superfluous uses of them did little to help me understand scripture better as I listened to sermons growing up. Kyle brings another good point here when he says, correcting common mistra mistranslation and highlighting intended wordplay equals good. Kyle shows us the good, the bad, and the ugly here. And we've talked about mistranslation and intended wordplay earlier in the episode. Surveying the entire range of lexical meanings, providing a theoretical, theoretically possible but unlikely translation to make a preaching point work better equals bad, and then pretending to know the originals better than one does equals ugly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Kyle has um, Kyle's mentioned a couple of things here. Uh, back to what Kelsey and Lee were saying um, using Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic to, uh, to simply show off is definitely a big no-no. Now, thankfully, I, I can't think of any time uh, recently or ever where I have heard a sermon and thought, the only reason you're quoting this particular word from the original language is because you want to show how smart you are. Thankfully, nobody has been so, so bad as to be obvious that that's what they're doing. Um, you know, with with a little bit of Greek knowledge, which is actually something that we're going to talk about here with the next point that uh, comes up by uh, one of my favorite professors, Dr. Phil Thompson, uh, retired from Harding University. Um, with a little bit of language knowledge can come um, an overinflated sense of one's... Um, Oh, of one's uh, abilities. Uh, so knowing a little bit of Greek can be harmful, can be harmful. And we'll let Dr. Thompson show us a little bit more about that in just a bit. But Kyle's uh, comment here about the good, the bad, and the ugly of it, I, I think he really hits something uh, pretty meaningful there. So last comment from Dr. Phil Thompson, my, who uh, taught at Harding for, um, I think for you know over 20 years. Um, I... I had him when he was still a pretty new professor and, um, you know, in Harding back in 2004. He said, My advice to preaching students has been to reference original languages only when you must to make your point. And sometimes you must to bring out possible meanings of the text, possibilities that may not be evident in English translation. Whether a genitive phrase is to be understood as objective or subject is, is just one example. 
the love of God, the faith of Christ. Let me pause you there for just a second here because Dr. Thompson has mentioned something that is a kind of a technical discussion in Greek, but makes a lot of sense, it, it, or is I think is fairly easy to explain, if, uh, if you give me just a second. The idea of being objective or subjective. Okay, well, let's, let's take out those uh, suffixes and just say object and subject with a phrase like the love of God. Well, how, how do we understand that phrase of God in the larger phrase, the love of God? Are we referring to God's love for us? Or are we referring to our love for God? Well, that's a question that sometimes arises in the study of Greek and, um, and, and Hebrew as well. What kind of, uh, you know, how are we to understand this phrase of God? Well, a subjective use of the love of God would be God is the subject. So it's God's love for us. An objective understanding of that phrase would be it's our love for God, where God is not the subject, he's the object, meaning the recipient of the love. Okay, same with the faith of Christ. Is it Jesus uh, Jesus's own faithfulness and fidelity to God, or is it our faith in Jesus? So anyway, that's uh, Dr. Thompson mentioned that, and I think it was good to good to kind of dig into that just for a second to illustrate what he's talking about here. But it goes on. Other times it is necessary to bring out a nuance that is difficult, even impossible to achieve in translation. But you know this, you know all this better than I do. You're a Greek teacher. From the listener's perspective, I think it depends on how often a preacher does it and the attitude with which the preacher comes across. You can come across as competent, informed, and helpful, or you can come across as a know-it-all, which is very off-putting to listeners. Listeners are perceptive. They pick up your attitudes as well as your words. In my experience, overdoing it is a particular problem for those who know a little Greek or Hebrew and are so excited about what they've learned they want to share it, which is commendable. But a little knowledge does not make one an expert who is capable of explaining difficult things in simple, understandable ways. The subject is one with which I've wrestled my entire preaching career. I really appreciate Dr. Thompson's um, candor there and his humility in, um, in opening up a little bit about how he has uh, wrestled with this particular issue of when and when not to use original languages in sermons. Um, I'm alluded to this uh, just a couple of minutes ago. Overdoing it is a particular problem for those who know a little Greek or Hebrew and are so excited about what they've learned they want to share it, which is commendable. That is definitely right. That uh, one of the things that's really beautiful about being able to teach um, teach a, an elementary Greek or an elementary Hebrew class, like what I teach for Harding School of Theology, one of the things that's really beautiful about that is to um, to very quickly demonstrate to your students the um, the value of this kind of study. That as you're showing them what might feel like a particularly boring concept, like, okay, here's how nouns change their spelling <laughs> over, over the course of, um, you know, all the ways in which they get used. Um, and then you illustrate that by, you know, well, okay, here's, here's why this change is meaningful. And it, uh, it helps us understand a little bit more about, you know, what Paul meant when he said X, Y, and Z, or, you know, something something like prepositions, you know, okay, well, let's think about what does it mean for us to be in Christ Jesus? We almost never say that about anybody else outside of, um, or really, in any context. But Paul frequently talks about how Christians are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so let's ask this question, what does this simple Greek preposition mean? Well, then from there you can expand and communicate a beautiful truth about how in can mean something like under the, you know, in the sphere of influence or uh, uh, under the, um, you know, uh, under the control of, right, not in like a mindless kind of controlling, but, um, or it can mean something like close association and relationship. Well, well, we get to those beautiful truths by asking a technical grammatical question about what does this preposition mean? Okay. 
Well, that's, that's, a, that's a good hook for folks who are learning these languages. But then that can, that can easily get lost if, if you don't really know how to like, bring it home. <laughs> and so I think Dr. Thompson's gun, done a, a really good job there. I appreciate everybody who has commented on this particular post from July of 2022. I found this discussion to be, um, to be pretty refreshing. And I was pleasantly surprised at how many people said they enjoyed it. And the only words of caution they offered was, you know, hey, just don't overdo it and don't look like a show-off, which is perfectly reasonable. It's absolutely reasonable for anybody to say, you know, if you're going to show people that you know something they don't know, that can be helpful to them, or you know something that they don't know, and you know something which can be helpful to them, do it humbly. Do it humbly. And I think that's perfectly reasonable. And, and it, entirely within the spirit of Christ that uh, every preacher and teacher should have. Guys, I really appreciate you all joining us today on Faith in the Folds. I hope that... Um, I hope that this particular episode is one that you uh, appreciate and maybe learn a little bit more about the art of preaching and teaching. I have been in congregational ministry in a full-time capacity since 2016, and I am still very much a learner. I am very much a learner. I, I'm, I'm more comfortable, I think, in a kind of a, like a teaching setting rather than a classroom and in like a school setting or in uh, in a uh, in a church setting, uh, preaching is something that I will do. It's not my first passion. It's not my first love, but I can. Um, but I appreciate being able to learn from uh, people who preach much more regularly than I do, especially these days. Guys like Dr. Thompson, um, Lee, who uh, I, I referred to earlier, Mark, and uh, you know, several of the other folks who uh, commented on. On this particular this particular post so thank you so much for joining us today uh, be blessed and we will see you next time bye-bye